Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. This is the Starship Sofa. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to Oral Delights on this Wednesday night. I hope everyone is fine and dandy. Yes, hello. So, welcome to Starship Sofa. Tonight we have fun packed show as usual and there's going to be slight changes with the show not really changes just trying to get more content in my goal to make it fully fledged science fiction magazine tune in and find out this podcast is brought to you by audible.com the internet's leading provider of spoken word entertainment. Get a free audiobook download of your choice when you sign up today. Log on to audiblepodcast.com slash sofa today for details. My grand scheme to make this Oral Delights into, our Starship Sofa's Oral Delights, into... A fully-fledged magazine starts with, or starts now, with a little new section called the editorial. And that's just really a bit of a a get-out clause for me, because normally I kind of ramble on a little bit, and sometimes maybe a little bit too much, about, you know, getting a rate, doing this, doing that. And I thought, you know, I could kind of really cheat and put that and call that the editorial. And if you get a magazine, you know, you always have this kind of editorial little bit first. So... From now on, there's going to be the editorial, and it'll just might be even a couple of minutes. Do you know what I mean? Me just saying hello might be the editorial, or it might be a little bit longer. Do you know? Just we'll see how it goes from each week. So, in this new editorial, what I want to talk about is the recruitment drive. Yes, everyone knows I've been shouting for narrators and offer still there. If anyone wants to narrate for the Starship Sofa, do drop me an email: starshipsover at gmail dot com. But a couple of things, what I'm thinking about, and please let us know if this is not really in your scene, not kind of your thing, it's not going the way Starship Sova, you intended it to go or wanted it to go. few things, I would like anyone who is interested in movies, and I don't know if it's maybe science fiction, maybe not, you know, who wants to be a monthly reviewer on Starship Sova, just basically a bit like what... Matt does with his fiction crawler, which is actually coming up later on the day. You know, just a bit like Amy does, just puts together a little article once a month on films. You know, relevant maybe to science fiction. I don't know, we'll just mull over and see what how it goes out there. Also, would like I would like a another recruitment drive for another reviewer, graphic novels. I honestly think it's 
needed, to be quite honest. You know, I'm no good at it. <laughs> you know, my blooming experiences with graphic novels and anything, you know, comics. I would like someone, if anyone's out there who's, you know, pretty kind of clued up, would like to do a review of each month a graphic novel or a couple of graphic novels, just to be able to point people in the direction of these are good ones, you know, what you thought of them, what you think of them, you know, stuff like that. So there's two, and I'm after, I've got an idea for another little part of the section, which I don't even want to go into too much just yet, but if anybody else is keen out there to get to actually, you know, come over on the Starship Sova and help out, basically, same as everything else, just once a month maybe, maybe even this one, once a week, just a little short two or three minute section, you know, drop us an email, Starship Sova. So there you go, movies, anyone's out there, get in touch Graphic novels, comics, anybody's keen and clued up on that. Get us, you know, and just jumping at back there. Movies, might even be TV programs, you know, anything on kind of that medium would be great too. Just have this little kind of section in five, ten minutes. And don't forget, you know, if you want to kind of, I've got this kind of little project I'm thinking about. If you want to come over and help out on that, that would be great. All you need, mic and a bit of free software, Audacity, and we're flying. And also, to make this, let's say, this magazine complete, you know, I was talking about skeet and art. Well, it's done. The first issue of the magazine cover is done, and it is fantastic. And you'll see it next week when the, that show 52, which is kind of the years up for Oral Delights, it's had its year, and it's fantastic. It's going strength for strength. And I'm honestly, like you see it, if you jump on board with us now and kind of come over and start helping out, this show just seems, I don't know, I'm, well, I suppose I am, I'm blowing me one trumpet, but it does, you know what I mean? It, it seems to be like getting bigger and bigger and becoming this magazine. And that's how, like I say, it's always been my dream. When you see this cover, you know, and Skeet said, you know, once a month, he's going to kind of get this cover out. And some of the stories that I've got lined up for Skeet are just like cracking classic stories, you know, and brand new things as well. So... That was good. Please look out for that. You know, that would be something special to look forward to. And as usual, any of these commentary, you know, like, drop, like you say, drop me an email, starshipsover at gmail.com, or go over to the forums, you know, and voice your opinions there. Do we need someone who's a movie kind of blogger, audio? Do we need that? Do we need a graphic novel? Do you know what I mean? I would like the feedback as well, you know, so please do that. So there, yes, that is the little editorial for this week. Thoughts, ideas, I'm open to anything. Starships over at gmail.com. In today's show, we have a fun pack show. Give you a little heads up what's coming on later on the day. We have Poetry by Michael Trim. We have Matthew Sanborn-Smith's Fiction Crawler number three. Go on, Matt. Fantastic, that one. Three new titles have fell through my door, so there is a new title section this week. We have Flash Fiction by L.E. Modisette Jr. It's actually a little bit longer than Flash Fiction. I think it's stretched into about 16, 17 minutes there, but it is a great story. Main Fiction tonight comes from that master of speculative fiction, Mr. Jeff Vandermeer. With a fantastic story. And right at the end of the show, there is the competition. Look out for that. 
So please, you have had the editorial, you have had the introduction, now enjoy the main show. And we will kick straight off with a little bit of Pori. The Fading Signals by Michael Trem. Silicone-based crystalline beings as frail as an old widow's whisper, their thoughts sparking light fast through the near-absolute Kelvinic chill, their memories one, their understanding complete, their knowledge incalculable, alone in the cosmos, they thought, they posited, they knew. Until echoes of their carbon-based kin arrived carried by dying radio waves, the grand annunciation of the gods of humankind, Sid and Milty, Burns and Benny, Amos and Andy, and Jackie, and Lucy. Lucy! 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 Vibrations, attempts to tune themselves to the alien frequencies, then failed harmonics, dissonance, feedback, Fractures, and finally one piercing note of intolerable stress. And mankind is alone in the universe. Finally. There you go, thank you, Michael Trim, sir. It is really appreciated. Diane, please everyone pop over to Diane Severson's site and check it out. I was speaking to someone the other day and who was it that actually mentioned it? Bought Diane's CD. So if you want to support the struggling artists on this show, pop over to Diane's site and check out her single. Single. <laughs> That's me. Took all the bloody my music off me bloody iPod. No, not with it no more. Check out her CD. Sure, I see Diane, thank you very much. So today's podcast is brought to you by Audible.com, the leading provider in spoken word entertainment. Audible has over 35,000 titles to choose from to be downloaded and played back anywhere, just like Starship Sofa. Log on to audiblepodcast.com slash sofa to get a free audiobook download of your choice when you sign up today. Again, go to audiblepodcast.com slash sofa for your free audiobook. I've just been over to Audible and had a look at their exclusive Frontiers titles. In there you have Harry Turtledove, After the Downfall, Mike Resnick, Stork and the Vampire, Jack Campbell, Valiant. Actually, Jack Campbell, and I never got to see him as well. He was at the French Utopias conference as well, so I missed him. Christine Catherine Rush, Rediscovery of Man. Robert J. Sawyer, Calculating God, Seeker, Jack McDivitt, Demons Are Forever, Simon R. Green, The Diamond Throne, David Eddins, Rendezvous with Rama, Arthur C. Clarke. In there as well you've got Neil Gaiman's The Graveyard Book, and I'm hearing lots of good things about George R. R. Martin's Song of Fire and Ice, his collection's in there as well. So do pop over to audible.com, claim your free audiobook. So next we come on to Flash Fiction, and it is by Ellie Modisette Jr. Lexington Exeton Modisette Jr., to be precise. Born in 1943, Denver, Colorado, author of science fiction and fantasy novels. Best known for the fantasy series, The Saga of the Recluse. 
He graduated from Williams College in Massachusetts, lived in Washington, D.C. for 20 years, then moved to New Hampshire in 1989, where he met his wife. They relocated to Cedar City, Utah in 1993. He's worked as Navy pilot, lifeguard, delivery boy, unpaid radio disc jockey, real estate agent, market research analyst, director of research for a political campaign. He's done a lot, shall we say. Like most of these science fiction writers, dabbled in all sorts. In addition to his novels, Mr. Modisett has published technical studies and articles, columns, poetry, and a number of science fiction stories. His first short story, The Great American Economy, was published in 1973 in Analog Science Fiction and Science Fact. Today's narration is by Travis Kennedy, a listener to The Starship Sofa. There you go, please. Travis is a fine example of if you want to come over to the Starship Sova, have a little dabble. Travis, thank you very much for this narration, sir. A fine one. So the Starship Sova is very proud to present The Pilots by L. E. Modisett Jr. The Sobak Revolt was a long time ago, but I remember my part in it as though it were yesterday. I don't talk about it, Brother Estefan. At least, until now I didn't, and I won't now. It won't change anything. What happened after the second war with the Sobaks is something else. You're young for recalling that, for it was little more than ten years after the revolt. My younger brother Walter, he was a pilot too, almost as good as I'd been. But Virginia would never have recognized what he did, except for the spirits of the wall. Except I never told anyone, not even Sarah. It's better that way, sometimes, when you really can't explain. The summer sun came up like always, above the trees on the east side of the river, rising over the swamps and ruined temples of the ancients, all of them wreathed in the steamy mist that meant the day would be one of those where the sun scorched everything even subduing the river into a sullen, flat expanse of warm water by mid-afternoon. Two gunboats were docked at the end of the Navy Pier, the canvas on the schooner's mast tied down tight. A smallish Neglin square rigger hogged the other pier, and figures began to move across the exposed deck soon after the six bells sounded from the cathedral. I didn't want to go where I had to, but there was no help for it and I needed to go before the ferry or the packet docked, and I might be called to work, such as it was then. Walter had had three rooms to the west, before the war, but Sarah was living in a room smaller than a closet in her sister's cot. Sarah might have been working in the kitchen, but, by the time I climbed the low hill and the steps, she was waiting for me, standing in the hot morning on the narrow porch. Holding Serena in her left arm, Sarah thrust a gray sheet of paper at me with her right. Her eyes were red and puffy. I couldn't reach it without taking a step forward. In my haste, I was less than careful, and the crutch slipped on the gravel of the path. I staggered, but caught myself, then took the broadsheet from her. It had been folded in thirds and held the stamp of the council on the outside, along with the bold cursive that bore Sarah's name. The words blurred as I read them. The pilot Walter Emerson was not of the Virgin Navy, and his death did not result from enemy fire or attack, 
Regrettable as it may be, his heirs may not receive death annuities, but only the lump sum payment already received for death by accident. I didn't need to read more, but I finished the short document. Those cables snapped because they were weakened by Sobek Cannon. You told me that, Sarah said. I told him not to go. I told him we didn't need the risk bonus. She took a deep breath, looking at me. A man has to do what he believes he should, or, before long, he has nothing to believe in. I was like that, and Walter had been that way, too, but I couldn't tell Sarah that. Not then. Not with Serena in her arms and another on the way. Not then. I didn't tell him to go. She just looked at me with those deep, red rim eyes. They gave us nothing except a few dollars. At least they gave you a position, Arlen. Position? They had. Greeter at the stranger's house opposite the ferry and a dollar a week from the council. Then, I had no wife. Few wanted to wed a man with but one good eye and one good leg, and I'd certainly not wanted to be a burden on anyone. Aye, and it's better than begging or working in the almshouse. You're alive, Arlen. Walter isn't. Her words were sharp, but I understood. I know. He was a good man, and he was my brother. Can't you do something? Can't you make them understand? Make them understand what? We petitioned the council, Sarah. And the council said no. Her eyes flashed, and even in her anger I could see why Walter had asked for her hand. Can't you do something? I'm not a counselor, and I'm not fancy with my words, Sarah. I was a pilot. I'm not mad at you, Arlen. You've stood by me as well as you can, and... She shook her head. In time, I had no more words, and I left Sarah, wordless, for what could I say? I made way back down towards the stranger's house. There, under the overhang of the front porch, for a time, I leaned on the crutch and looked out across the river, towards the ruins I knew were on the east shore and could not see through the trees and the mist, though the mist would be gone in the heat of the day when everything simmered under the summer sun. Arlen. The voice was that of Rissa. I didn't turn. I heard. So has all of Zandra, I replied, still without looking at her. So have the brothers and the council. A few dollars, a fancy gilt paper, and they think they've done right by Walter. Half the fleet would have gone down under the Sobek batteries if it hadn't been for him. Times are hard now, Arlen. Times have always been hard. She's young. She can wed again. She'll have to, won't she? My voice was hard. Or go to the streets or the cribs and lie with strangers, unless she'll settle for a man with one eye in a single room. Rissa didn't answer for a time. When she finally spoke, her voice was both soft and tired. Arlen, I can handle the greeting today. You wouldn't do it well. I didn't protest. Instead, I hurried, as well as I could, down to the ferry pier. There I waited. Because I'd been a pilot, Thomas always let me ride as a courtesy. The ferry runs north of Zandra and docks at Georgetown. From there, I made my way off and down the pier and along the stone road that flanks the east side of the river. Storm clouds were rising into the midday of summer before I reached the flats that bordered the swamps, and the ruined temples where the ancients practiced their necromancy. The black wall has been there, half rising out of the earth, for longer than anyone can remember. It sits to the north and the east of the ancient temple of the seated god. 
The seated God has long been dead, for never do the ravens flock to the time-smoothed white stone, and the pigeons despoil the almost tottering columns. Still, the tree-shaded steps would be a pleasant place from which one could watch the schooners coming up the river to Port Zandra. A pleasant place, were it not for the warnings of the brothers about the evil buried there. A pleasant place if one did not have to look westward across the river at the cathedral, and the mass of stone that was the council seat. I hadn't come through the heat and steam for the view. I'd come, as I'd years before, because it was said that sometimes the black wall offered answers. It hadn't the last time, when I'd first been able to hobble there on a crutch, but, again, there was nowhere else to turn, and I owed Walter, and Sarah, that much. The ancients invested that stretch of polished black stone, with its endless runes cut so precisely into the stone. They invested it with the manna of sadness. The power is so great that even after all the centuries a man who believes not in ghosts, nor the necromancy about which the brothers prate, nor in that which he cannot see or feel, that man, me, hoped for answers that the black stone had never given him. I'd thought that the ancient stretch of polished stone, or the manna within it, might offer some answers. Then, I thought that once before, and had gotten none. Still, I looked at the black stone, and kept looking from one end of the long line of blackness to the other. In the afternoon stillness, not even a pigeon fluttered, so alone was I. The wall said nothing, offered nothing. Walls don't, even ancient black walls raised for necromancy on the power of the dead. Why? I poured all the anguish into the cry and the plea, feeling foolish as I did. Nothing happened. I eased myself forward, and my fingers brushed the time-worn runes, each set gathered in groups, usually three or four, and cut precisely into the stone so that each group was level with the group flanking it, seemingly for as far as the black stone stretched before it finally sank into the mossy ground. Why? I asked again. The wall doesn't offer explanations, came a voice. It never does. I knew I was alone. No one could have crept up on me, but I turned. A man stood there, with silver hair cut shorter than even a recruit's. His clean-shaven face was smooth, but he wasn't young. He was no ghost. Above the lines on his face, I could see the dampness of sweat on his forehead. He wore a black waistcoat with a cotton linen shirt beneath, but such a linen shirt, so tightly woven, I could not even see any trace of an individual thread and with fine black stripes against a brilliant white. His trousers were coal black, as were the shimmering boots he wore. For a moment, I just stared. He blinked as if looking into a bright sun, though he stood in the shade of the green oaks that towered to the east. Finally, he spoke again, thoughtfully. We have to find the explanations. You shouldn't be here, or I shouldn't. Why are you here? I finally asked. Same reason as you, I'd guess. Still seeking reasons, explanations, after all these years. Are you a brother of some sort? I'm just a pilot. He didn't look like any pilot I'd ever seen, but more like a dandy. His eyes narrowed as he looked at me. What are the runes for? I asked quickly. Runes? I pointed to those etched into the stone before me. 
Each one is someone who died in the war. He laughed bitterly. Except they're not all there. For the first time, he looked beyond me, taking in the tall oaks, and then the part of the temple of the seated god that was visible through the scrub and swamp grass. He shook his head. I'll bet you don't even know why the wall is here. No, I admitted. The brothers claim it holds evil mana of the ancients, worse than that of the seated god. They say that it was raised in evil by necromancers. His eyes remained on the white stones of the temple of the seated god. Poor Abe, no one knows you either. His lips curled. Vanity of vanities. He shook his head again and turned those deep eyes towards me. But I don't think he was looking at me, but somewhere else. When he spoke, his words were low, as if only for himself, but my ears have always been sharp. You've really gone around the bend this time, Pete, and without a single beer. What war? I asked. How did it get all the mana? For a long time, he looked at me, standing in the shadows. I looked back, and when I squinted, it was almost as though I could see through him. See the black stone and the mossy ground and the scrub bushes behind him. The Vietnam War, the one that killed 55,000 men, and some women, and lots of others. The name meant nothing to me, and I couldn't believe he'd said 55,000. That was as many people as lived within Zandra and all the towns within three days or more of travel. You were a pilot? Search and rescue. Flew H-2s, mostly. That was 30 years ago, but you never quite forget. And you never forget the ones who didn't make it, or the ones who aren't on the wall, the ones who died testing the birds or in the wrong places, or outside the magic lines drawn by the bureaucrats. I heard the words, but not all of them made sense. But perhaps the brothers were right about the Blackstone. The spirit pilot, if that's what he happened to be, was talking about magic lines and pilots who flew strange birds rather than vessels upon the sea. Like Walter, I murmured. He waited for me to continue, an expression between amusement and disbelief on his clean-shaven face. His eyes held something I didn't want to see. So I talked, since no one else except Sarah would listen or care. He was a pilot on the Warner. He was the lead pilot on the Savannah expedition because he knew the channels, but he wasn't Navy. A council promised that they'd take care of his family if anything happened during the attack. The Sobaks were waiting, and they'd even mined the side channels. Walter was better, though, and got the Warner and most of the invasion fleet back out to sea, even through the bombardment from the shore batteries and a running attack from fast gunboats. Once they were clear, they hit heavy seas. They didn't know that the Sobak batteries had almost cut the rudder cables. In the storm, one snapped. It broke through the housing and snapped Walter's neck. I shrugged. Your counsel said that it didn't happen during the attack, suggested the spirit pilot in the waistcoat, a bemused expression on his face, as if he'd heard the story already. How did you know? I demanded. Because nothing changes, he gestured towards the black stone. They say that all those who died are here, but they're not. He laughed sardonically. They never are. There are always those who sacrificed, who didn't fit the definitions, who didn't die with the right ceremonies, 
or who sacrificed themselves for the wrong reason in the wrong season. That was true when they built the wall, and apparently it was true for your brother. Walter didn't sacrifice himself. It wasn't like that. We all make sacrifices if we're really alive. Then, as suddenly as he had come, he vanished. I shivered. Even hurrying, a man with a crutch has trouble going long distances, and I barely made the twilight ferry back from Georgetown to Zandra, back to ready myself to appear before the council with the words of the spirit pilot that I held within my heart and soul, and back to Sarah. The ancients were powerful, and that we no longer have such power, for such I am supposed to be grateful, according to Brother Dier. Yet, on many twilights, I've seen the figure of that silver-haired ancient, and not just near the wall, but on my own portico, the portico Sarah and I built when we left Sandra. Far older than I was then, older than I am now even, and yet his face was that of a man in his prime, but his eyes and his words. They're not all there, you know. They never are. There are always those who sacrificed, who didn't fit the definitions, who didn't die with the right ceremonies, or who sacrificed themselves for the wrong reason in the wrong season. We all make sacrifices, if we're really alive. Perhaps the only thing I ever learned, truly learned, was from a spirit, and the only answer I ever got was because I didn't ask for myself. You won't be telling anyone now, Brother Estefan. Who would believe you? They didn't believe me. The ecclesiarchs wouldn't believe that the old idols have power, or that the ancients held the skies, or that the runes on the wall are names, names of more dead men than all those who live in Zandra, and that even the magics of the old ones couldn't hold all those who died in a war so long ago that we don't even know what it was about. Except so many died and created such sadness that their spirits and those who mourn them still cross the times between us. And there you go, don't forget, as usual, copyright is Ellie Morissette Jr.'s. Thank you very much, sir. It is much appreciated. I have put a link on to Mr. Morissette's website. Do pop over there and have a look. Travis, thank you very much, sir. Well, you've been waiting for it. It is finally here, a fiction crawler, number three. Matthew, sir, how are you doing? And actually, if you listen to Matt's stories, we might be kind of on the same wavelength, Matt. I'm not too sure. Not many people are on mine. But there's a number of stories, what Matt is mentioning, that I've got actually books lined up, ready to go. So there. One of them will actually have the cover of the Christmas story, designed by Skeet, no less. So, Matt, what have you got to say? Hello, good night. This is Matthew Sanborn-Smith and the Fiction Crawler. Sexy good internet yarns for me and for you. Hooray! After months of depressing stories, we've mixed in some light-hearted fare this time around. So rare in the lands of science fiction. Half of these stories made me laugh out loud, and who doesn't need that in the dystopian slums that our favorite tales inhabit? In our time-warped world of podcasting, as these words leave my mouth, America's 2008 election day is 11 days in the future. 
As these words hit your ears, the election might be next week, yesterday, or five years ago. Though on Oral Delights, it's always Wednesday night. Nevertheless, I've got an electoral tie-in with Night of the Living Potus by Adam Troy Castro. You can find the story at the recently defunct HelixSF.com, that mag that spent the summer bouncing around forums and comment sections like a weathered ping-pong ball. Night of the Living Potus lets you and me, the little guys, in on what's really going on in the White House after the inaugural party is over. Turns out every president fights for his life in a cage match against dozens of psychopaths. I have no idea how a man of Ronald Reagan's age ever made it out alive. It's an educational bloodbath, and what could be more entertaining? At futurismic.com, it's not hilarious, but bittersweet with the story Shibuya No Love by Finnish expat Hanu Rajaniemi. Now, I just slaughtered his name, and I knew that I would, so I emailed him for the pronunciation. He was kind enough to send me a link with the audio pronunciation of his name, and now that it's time to record, the bloody page won't come up. So my apologies, Mr. Rajani Emmy, or whatever your name is. To continue, when Mr. R is not fictionating, he does real sciencey things somewhere in the misty realm of Scotland. Anyone remember the Max Headroom TV series? Only the best science fiction series ever. If you're a fan, you may remember the very first episode about blipverts, which are full-length advertisements compressed into about a second, which sometimes overloaded a body's sensory system. Well, Shibuya No Love is about amorous relationships at blipvert speed through the wonders of the quantum love giddy. First comes love, then comes marriage, then comes Maddie in a baby carriage. All, as my father says, in two shakes of a lamb's tail. Halfway in, I thought it might not be such a bad idea, knowing if a person might be worth your while in an instant after meeting them. But by the end of the story, the consequences of high-speed love in this future Japan flew even faster than I had imagined. I wonder how much scar tissue a human being could carry after a lifetime of one-second true loves. Rajani Emmy just signed a book deal a couple of weeks back. I look forward to what else he's got to say. I love discovering science fiction in places I'd never expect it, and this month I was rewarded at socialistreview.org. I should have saved this one for the December fiction crawler, but like the chipmunks, I can hardly wait. The story is called Tis the Season, and it's by master fantasist China Mieville. Although threatened many times, I'd never actually been taken down to Chinatown before this story, but now I thirst for more. In the future of Tis the Season, corporations have trademarked not only the word Christmas, but everything associated with it, right down to the tinsel on the tree. People can still celebrate Christmas, provided they pay the licensing fees. As usual, the oligarchy has sucked the fun out of life in this fast-forwarded Merry Christmas Charlie Brown. Our hero tries to give his daughter a midwinter event on the cheap with cherry tomatoes decorating the cacti until he wins an invitation to Yule Co.'s licensed Christmas party. But the holiday might turn ugly as the people take it to the streets. Can Christmas be salvaged as protests from dozens of splinter groups escalate into an out-and-out -out riot? David Langford of the legendary fan newsletter Ansible has a story at infinityplus.co.uk which originally appeared in Interzone back when I was but a teenager. Twenty years later, this feels like a cool, fresh idea to me. Blit is the story, Blit standing for Berryman Logical Image Technique. That should explain everything. Moving right along, wait, it doesn't? Well, Blit postulates the discovery of a certain type of fractal image that triggers thoughts in the viewer, which in turn attack the brain. Imagine a type of landmine that doesn't need to be stepped on to activate, it just needs to be looked at. What happens when a white supremacist in London gets a hold of something like that? 
What happens when all a terrorist needs to kill is a pair of protective goggles, a can of spray paint, and a stencil of a parrot? No, it's not an ex-parrot, but if you don't avert your eyes or get suddenly stinking drunk, you might wind up an ex-person. While averting those eyes, be sure to keep one of them trained on Ted Kosmatka, a great new talent in science fiction. I just discovered him this year in the Inky Paper Mags and Gardner Dozois' Best Of Anthology. This month I was pleased as pie to find that he had a story in Ideomancer last year because I wanted to share him with you. Unfortunately, I can't link you directly to the story because of Ideomancer's navigatory choices, but go to their page, click on Previous Issues to the left, and then 2007 Archive in the middle of the page. Click the cover next to September 2007, and there you will find the link to Kazmatka's story, Dead Knots. Dead Knots tells of a human exploration team in deep space who don't actually seem to do much in the way of exploring during the course of the story. What they do do is come out of suspended animation for a little while, and then go back in, again and again. And it doesn't seem to be a very pleasant experience. The team has been in space for so long that our heroine, Ola, is certain that the rest of the human race is extinct. Going home is never mentioned. They just keep going out farther and farther for what might as well be called forever as the crew slowly succumbs to brain damage caused by the cryosystem that keeps them under. What is suspended animation, and how close is it to death? It's a bleak story, but in it, Kazmatka is able to explore philosophical questions that just aren't possible in mainstream literature. It makes Dead Knots, and some of his other fiction, the kind that sticks to your ribs, not just for emotional impact, but because it makes the reader rethink his or her relationship to existence. Finally, 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 we come to the best of the best, the last story I'll mention, and the one audio story. If you listen to The Sofa, and you do, because you are, you probably also listen to Escape Pod. I've listened to nearly every episode of Escape Pod, and I found the one story which is hands down the best. It's so good, I know it's better than the few I haven't even listened to. Maybe you've heard it too. The story is called Connie Maybe by Paul E. Martens, and if you have heard it, go hear it again. People, it's a rare occasion when I'll read even my favorite stories twice. I don't know why, but that's just me. It's equally as rare that I'll listen to an audio story twice. Without a first thought, I give away books and delete audio files. Never the sofas, of course. Those I keep in a special iPod beneath my pillow, right next to my stuffed tooth fairy. But ladies and gentlemen, I have listened to Connie maybe at least nine times. I played it for my kids, I played it for my wife, I played it for my mother-in-law. I love this story. There's been some discussion on the forums concerning the impact of a narrator on a story. Let me tell you, Wichita Rutherford puts this one over the top. He's like a southern fried Paul Lynn, and hearing his magnificent voice, you buy into the story immediately. Connie Maybe is a classic story of pod people paranoia, but told fun. What happens when one of those good old truck-driving, beer-swilling boys that the aliens always seem to probe tells his friends about it, and they believe him? He suddenly seems to act differently to them, and soon they start to act differently as well, putting down the beer and craving lemonade and listening to jazz. What the hell is Connie doing to them? It's enough to drive a person to extremes. I tell you folks, I lust after new ideas. I always have, and these stories bubble with ideas, or with laughs, which is just as good. There are one or two of you I know that have not listened to or read with rapt awe every single recommendation I have made. It astounds me, but I'm willing to grant amnesty just so long as you check out today's stories as soon as this show is drawn to a close. Hey, cheat everyone else if you must, but don't cheat yourself. I wish you all dry newspapers, loving families, and long bouncy hair until next month. No, even beyond next month. 
Fare thee well, little sofa naughties, and good night. Janori, I love that little kind of segment by Matt. Matt is fantastic. You can tell he's a quick little writer as well. He just puts it all in. Matt Theo, sir, thank you very much. So we come on to the new titles this week, and we've got three new titles, two by our good friends at Orbit and one by Tor Publishing. First one up then is an Orbit book, The Stupidest Angel by Christopher Moore. And actually, it sounds really quite good. And it's all to do with a little, it's got a Christmas theme on it there. So front cover, Christmas tree with some, looks like Santa Claus's feet sticking out underneath it. I'll give you a little heads up on the blurb on the back. Twas the night, okay, more likely the week before Christmas. And little Joshua Baker is in desperate need of a Christmas miracle. Josh is sure he saw Santa take a shovel to the head and now the seven-year-old has only one prayer. Please, Santa, come back from the dead. But coming to earth, seeking a small child whose wish needs granting is none other than Archangel Rizal. Unfortunately, he's not sporting the brightest halo in the bunch and before you can say mistletoe, he's botched his sacred mission and sent the residents of Pine Cove headlong into Christmas chaos, accumulating in the most hilarious and horrifying holiday party the town has ever seen. Publishers Weekly says, Hilarity abound. This little slice of perverse Christmas cheer is enough to make the most cynical Scrooge go off. <laughs> It looks like I've never read, and I've seen Christopher Moore's stuff in the kind of all on the kind of fantasy science fiction, you know. But he's got like a very contemporary cover on this thing, and like I say, they've been there, so obviously he's into this, you know, the fantastically writing. And what I'm picking up is this Pine Cove is where his fiction's based, you know, he's, he's kind of little fictional world. What is you know with Orbit, you've got these extras at the back, and he's got. I'll give you a little read of. Christopher Moore, and then there's a little kind of interview with him as well, or little questions. Christopher Moore began writing at the age of six and became the oldest known child prodigy when, in his early 30s, he published his first novel. His turn-ons are The Ocean, Playing Toad Lotto, and Talking Animals on TV. His turn-offs are Semolina, Traffic and Rude People. Chris lives in an inaccessible island fortress in the Pacific, but you can email him at christopher.moore.uk at gmail.com or his official Christopher Moore website, chrismoore.com. And like I say, there's a little bit like questions here, and it says one of them, what is your favourite Christmas memory? My father was a policeman, and he often worked until midnight on holidays. So Christmas night, when I was very little, perhaps five, I stayed up very late because I was very excited about the arrival of Santa Claus. My father knew I would never go to sleep until Father Christmas came. So when he arrived home, but before he came into the house, he fired his police revolver into the ground, and when he came through the door, he said, Chris, it's okay, you can go to bed now. I saw Santa Claus up on the roof trying to get down our chimney, so I shot him. I cried and cried. My father had a somewhat macabre sense of humour. I think that's something, you know what I mean? I would do something like that. I thought that's fantastic. So, Chris Moore, the stupidest angel, Price is six ninety nine, and they see how many pages. 
about 240 and then you've got the extra pages as well so there you go next one another paperback it is towards the can corporate by charlie stross the new book in the saga of the merchant prince now i haven't read any of these by charlie stross but it's like say the third book the first one was the family trade then the hidden family and like i say you've got this one the clan corporate priced at 6.99 and again the cover's not that good unfortunately i mean don't get us wrong it might be a crack and read i've never like i see charlie stross there but the cover is guess what a ring there you go how original is that never mind here's a little bit blurb on the back the clan corporate offers more proof, if any would be needed, that why Charles Strauss has become universally acknowledged as one of the science fiction's major new talents. I'll give you a little bit blurb on the actual story. A young business journalist from Boston, Miriam, discovered her family comes from a parallel timeline, that she is very well connected and her family is way too much like the Mafia for her comfort. She tried hard to remain her own woman, even going so far as to start a profitable and legitimate business in a third timeline she has discovered beyond the family's reach. There's been murders and betrayals. Now, however, she may be overreaching herself if she gets caught. Death or worse is just around the corner. For instance, there's a brain-damaged son of the loyal king who needs a wife, but they'd never make her do that, would they? So there you go clip more here in the family trade and the hidden family that's part one part two miriam got in touch with her roots now those roots have begun to strangle her 699 charlie stross 310 pages the clan corporate be nice to know if anyone's read that or one and two just see what it's like drop me an email third one is again by our good friends orbit and this one is a meaty book Russell Kirkpatrick, The Dark Heart. This is actually part two of the Broken Man series. A little heads up on Russell Kirkpatrick. Russell Kirkpatrick's love of literature and a chance encounter with fantasy novels as a teenager opened up a vast number of possibilities for him. The idea that he could marry storytelling and map making, his other passion, into one project grabbed him and wouldn't let him go. Across the face of the world with the first volume of the Fire of Heaven trilogy was the result of 15 years of careful world building and introduced the reader to the rich detail of Russell's world and its characters. Russell lectures in geography and manages a small map making business. He lives in New Zealand with his wife and two children. You can visit him at russellkirtpatrick.com. The forces of chaos gathering, God seek to pierce the veil between the worlds. Notos and his reluctant companion are on the run as the recruiters hunger for the powerful artefact that Notos keeps hidden. When the weather turns destructive, Notos finds he's easy to cover his tracks, but, however useful things might be, it's a warning that something is deeply wrong with the world. A continent away, Leonez leads the cosmographers following the death of her mistress. Leonez can also sense a wrongness. Trained to detect the presence of the true gods, she can find no evidence of the father. He is missing. But is it possible that a god could be dead? And if so, could the resulting imbalance be the cause of the worsening cataclysm? These are only the pieces of the puzzle. 
The reality is far stranger than they can imagine. Sci-fi.com says a joyous experience for readers who love getting lost in a complex fictional world. Russell Kirkpatrick, just if you're interested in the Fire and Heaven trilogy, cross the face of the world, in earth abides of flame and the right hand of God. And then this actual one, the Broken Man trilogy, you had Path of Revenge first, then this Dark Heart. And again with the these books, they've got like the extras, the orbits put these extras in. And it's great because there's actually a little bit of Wolfbeard by Jennifer Fallon, so you can have a little preview of that. Seven ninety nine, and we're talking roughly around six hundred and thirty pages. Russell Kirkpatrick's *The Dark Heart*. There you go, and find out how you can win every one of these books: *The Stupidest Angel* by Christopher Moore, *The Clan Corporate* by Charlie Stross, and Russell Kirkpatrick's *The Dark Heart*. These books are here, and they're going to be in the competition. Tune in later on at the end of the show, and I will tell you how. So we are left now with the final segment of the show. Main fiction. It comes from Jeffrey Scott Vandermeer. Little heads up there. He was born July the 7th, 1968. A young pup. <laughs> American writer, editor, publisher. He was born in Pennsylvania, but spent much of his childhood in the Fiji Islands, where his parents worked for the Peace Corps. Author of best-selling City of Saints and Mad Men. He has won two World Fantasy Awards. Vandermeer reviews essays that have appeared in the Washington Post Book World, Publishers Weekly and many others. He is also a regular columnist for Amazon Book Culture Blog. Forthcoming projects in 2008 include seven anthologies, a short film based on his story, The Situation. He has another short story coming out entitled Finding Sonoria. That you, you can find that story in Pluto, the anti-pop cultural journal, alongside writers such as Reese Hughes and Steve Redwood. There's also several novellas coming out, including Born, a sequel to The Situation, A Very Busy Man. Narration today comes from our good friend, Mr. Mark Nelson. I'll put a link onto Mark's website. Do pop over there. Becoming a very professional narrator. <laughs> So, the Starship Sofa is proud to present The Third Bear. It made its home in the deep forest near the village of Grauman, and all anyone ever saw of it, before the end, would be hard eyes and the dark barrel of its muzzle. The smell of piss and blood and shit and bubbles of saliva and half-eaten food the villagers called it the third bear, because they had killed two bears already that year. But, near the end, no one really thought of it as a bear, even though the name had stuck, changed by repetition and fear, and slurring through blood-filled mouths to Theber. Sometimes it even sounded like Seether or Seabird. The third bear came to the forest in midsummer, and soon most anyone who used the forest trail, day or night, disappeared, carried off to the creature's lair. By the time even large convoys had traveled through, they would discover two or three of their number missing.
a straggling horseman, his mount cantering along, just bloodstains and bits of skin sticking to the saddle. A cobbler gone, but for a shredded, bloodied hat. A few of the richest villagers hired mercenaries as guards. But when even the strongest men died, silent and alone, the convoys dried up. The village elder, a man named Horley, held a meeting to decide what to do. It was the end of summer by then, and the leaves had begun to disappear from the trees. The meeting-house had a chill to it, a stench of thick earth with a trace of blood and sweat curling through it. All five hundred villagers came to the meeting, from the few remaining merchants to the poorest beggar. Grauman had always been hard-scrabble and tough winters, but it was also two hundred years old. It had survived the wars of barons and of kings, been raised twice, only to return. "'I can't bring my goods to market,' one farmer said, rising in shadow from beneath the thatch. "'I can't be sure I want to send my daughter to the pen to milk the goats.' Horley laughed, said, "'It's worse than that. We can't bring in food from the other side. Not for sure. Not without losing men.' Horley had a sudden vision from months ahead, of winter, of ice gravelly with frozen blood. It made him shudder. "'What about those of us who live outside the village?' another farmer asked. "'We need the pasture for grazing.' but we have no protection. Horley understood the problem. He had been one of those farmers once. The village had a wall of thick logs surrounding it, to a height of ten feet. No real defense against an army, but more than enough to keep the wolves out. Beyond that perimeter lived the farmers and the hunters and the outcasts who could not work among others. "'You may have to pretend it is a time of war "'and live in the village and go out with a guard,' Horley said. "'We have plenty of able-bodied men still.' "'Is the witch-woman doing this?' Clem the blacksmith asked. "'No,' Horley said. "'I don't think it's the witch-woman.' "'What Clem and some of the others thought of as a witch-woman,' Horley thought of as a crazy person who knew some herbal remedies and lived in the woods because the villagers had driven her there, blaming her for an outbreak of sickness the year before. "'Why did it come?' a woman asked. "'Why us?' No one could answer, least of all Horley. As Horley stared at all of those hopeful, scared, troubled faces, he realized that not all of them yet knew they were stuck in a nightmare. Clem was the village's strongest man, and after the meeting he volunteered to fight the beast. He had arms like most people's thighs. His skin was tough, from years of being exposed to flame. With his full black beard he almost looked like a bear himself. "'I'll go,' "'And I'll go willingly,' he told Horley. "'I've not met the beast I couldn't best. "'I'll squeeze the A out of him.' "'And he laughed, 
for he had a passable sense of humor, although most chose to ignore it. Horley looked into Clem's eyes and could not see even a speck of fear there. This worried Horley. "'Be careful, Clem,' Horley said, and in a whisper, as he hugged the man, "'Instruct your son in anything he might need to know before you leave. Make sure your wife has what she needs, too.' Fitted in chain-mail, leathers, and a metal helmet, carrying an old sword some knight had once left in Grauman by mistake, Clem set forth in search of the third bear. The entire village came out to see him go. Clem was laughing and raising his sword, and this lifted the spirits of those who saw him. Soon everyone was celebrating as if the third bear had already been killed or defeated. Fools, Horley's wife Rebecca said as they watched the celebration with their two young sons. Rebecca was younger than Horley by ten years, and had come from a village far beyond the forest. Horley's first wife had died from a sickness that left red marks all over her body. "'Perhaps, but it's the happiest anyone's been for a month,' Horley said. "'Let them have these moments.' "'All I can think of is that he's taken one of our best horses out into danger.' Rebecca said. "'Would you rather he took a nag?' Horley said, but absent-mindedly. His thoughts were elsewhere. The vision of winter would not leave him. Each time it came back to Horley with greater strength, until he had trouble seeing the summer all around him. Clem left the path almost immediately, wandered through the underbrush to the heart of the forest, where the trees grew so black and thick that the only glimmer of light came from the reflection of water on leaves. The smell in that place carried a hint of awful. Clem had spent so much time beating things into shape that he had not developed a sense of fear, for he had never been beaten. But the smell in his nostrils did make him uneasy. He wandered for some time in the deep growth, where the soft loam of moss muffled the sound of his passage. It became difficult to judge direction and distance. The unease became a knot in his chest as he clutched his sword ever tighter. He had killed many bears in his time, this was true, but he had never had to hunt a man-eater. Eventually, in his circling, meandering trek, Clem came upon a hill with a cave inside. From within the cave, a green flame flickered. It beckoned like a lithe but crooked finger. A lesser man might have turned back, but not Clem. He didn't have the sense to turn back. Inside the cave, he found the third bear. Behind the third bear, arranged around the walls of the cave, it had displayed the heads of its victims. The heads had been painstakingly painted and mounted on stands. They were all in various stages of rot. Many bodies lay stacked neatly in the back of the cave. 
all of them had been defiled in some way. Some of them had been mutilated. The wavery green light came from a candle the third bear had placed behind the bodies, to display its handiwork. The smell of blood was so thick that Clem had to put a hand over his mouth. As Clem took it all in, the methodical nature of it, the fact that the third bear had not eaten any of its victims, he found something inside of him tearing and then breaking. "'I,' he said, and looked into the terrible eyes of the third bear. "'I—' Almost sadly, with a kind of ritual grace, the third bear pried Clem's sword from his fist, placed the weapon on a ledge, and then came back to stare at Clem once more. Clem stood there, frozen, as the third bear disemboweled him. The next day Clem was found at the edge of the village, blood-soaked and shit-spattered, legs gnawed away, but alive enough for a while to, in shuddering lurches, tell those who found him what he had seen, just not coherent enough to tell them where. Later Horley would wish that he hadn't told them anything. There was nothing left but fear in Clem's eyes by the time Horley questioned him. Horley didn't remember any of Clem's answers, had to be retold them later. He was trying to reconcile himself to looking down to stare into Clem's eyes. "'I'm cold, Horley,' Clem said. "'I can't feel anything. Is winter coming?' "'Should we bring his wife and son?' The farmer who had found Clem asked Horley at one point. Horley just stared at him, aghast. They buried Clem in the old graveyard, but the next week the third bear dug him up and stole his head. Apparently, the third bear had no use for heroes, except, possibly, as a pattern of heads. Horley tried to keep the grave robbery, and what Clem had said a secret, but it leaked out anyway. By the time most villagers of Grauman learned about it, the details had become more monstrous than anything in real life. Some said Clem had been kept alive for a week in the bear's lair, while it ate away at him. Others said Clem had had his spine ripped out of his body while he was still breathing. A few even said Clem had been buried alive by mistake, and the third bear had heard him writhing in the dirt and come for him. But one thing Horley knew that trumped every tall tale spreading through Grauman, the third bear hadn't had to keep Clem alive. Theber hadn't had to place Clem, still breathing, at the edge of the village. So Seether wasn't just a bear. In the next week, four more people were killed, one on the outskirts of the village. Several villagers had risked leaving, and some of them had even made it through. But fear kept most of them in Grauman, locked into a kind of desperate fatalism or optimism 
that made their eyes hollow as they stared into some unknowable distance. Horley did his best to keep morale up, but even he experienced a sense of sinking. "'Is there more I can do?' he asked his wife in bed one night. "'Nothing,' she said. "'You are doing everything you can do. "'Should we just leave? "'Where would we go? "'What would we do?' Few who left ever returned with stories of success, it was true. There was war and plague and a thousand more dangers out there beyond the forest. They'd as likely become slaves or servants or simply die, one by one, out in the wider world. Eventually, though, Horley sent a messenger to that wider world— to a far distant baron to whom they paid fealty and a yearly amount of goods. The messenger never came back, nor did the baron send any men. Horley spent many nights awake, wondering if the messenger had gotten through and the baron just didn't care, or if Seether had killed the messenger. "'Maybe winter will bring good news,' Rebecca said." Over time, Grauman sent four or five of its strongest and most clever men and women to fight the third bear. Horley objected to this waste, but the villagers insisted that something must be done before winter, and those who went were unable to grasp the terrible velocity of the situation. For Horley, it seemed merely a form of taking one's own life, but his objections were overruled by the majority. They never learned what happened to these people, but Horley saw them in his nightmares. One, before the end, said to the third bear, "'If you could see the children in the village, you would stop.' Another said, before fear clotted her windpipe, "'We will give you all the food you need.' A third, even as he watched his intestines slide out of his body, said, "'Surely there is something we can do to appease you.' In Horley's dreams, the third bear said nothing. Its conversation was through its work, and Seether said what it wanted to say very eloquently in that regard. By now, fall had descended on Grauman. The wind had become unpredictable, and the leaves of trees had begun to yellow. A far-off burning smell laced the air. The farmers had begun to prepare for winter, laying in hay and slaughtering and smoking hogs and goats. Horley became more involved in these preparations than usual, driven by his vision of the coming winter. People noted the haste, the urgency so unnatural in Horley, and, to his dismay, it sometimes made them panic rather than work harder. With his wife's help, Horley convinced the farmers to contribute to a communal smokehouse in the village. Ham, sausage, dried vegetables, onions, potatoes, they stored it all in Grauman now. Most of the outlying farmers realized that their future depended on the survival of the village. Sometimes, 
when they opened the gates to let in another farmer and his mule-drawn cart of supplies, Horley would walk out a ways and stare into the forest. It seemed more unknowable than ever, gaunt and dark, as if diminished by the change of seasons. Somewhere out there the third bear waited for them. One day, the crisp cold of coming winter a lingering promise, Horley and several of the men from Grauman went looking for a farmer who had not come to the village for a month. The farmer's name was John, and he had a wife, five children, and three men who worked for him. John's holdings were the largest outside the village, but he had been suffering because he could not bring his extra goods to market. The farm was a half-hour's walk from Grauman. The whole way Horley could feel a hurt in his chest, a kind of stab of premonition. Those with him held pitchforks and hammers and old spears, much of it as rust-colored as the leaves now strewn across the path. They could smell the disaster before they saw it. It coated the air like oil. On the outskirts of John's farm they found three mule-pulled carts laden with food and supplies. Horley had never seen so much blood. It had pooled and thickened to cover a spreading area several feet in every direction. The mules had had their throats torn out, and then they had been disemboweled. Their organs had been torn out and thrown onto the ground, as if Seether had been searching for something. Their eyes had been plucked from their sockets almost as an afterthought. John, they thought it was John, sat in the front of the lead cart. The wheels of the cart were greased with blood. The head was missing, as was much of the meat from the body cavity. The hands still held the reins. The same was true for the other two carts. Three dead men holding reins to dead mules— two dead men in the back of the carts, all five missing their heads, all five eviscerated. One of Horley's protectors vomited into the grass. Another began to weep. "'Jesus, save us!' a third man said, and kept saying it for many hours. Horley found himself curiously unmoved, his hand and heart were steady. He noted the brutal humor that had moved the third bear to carefully replace the reins in the men's hands. He noted the wild, savage abandon that had preceded that action. He noted grimly that most of the supplies in the carts had been ruined by the wealth of blood that covered them. But for the most part, the idea of winter had so captured him that whatever came to him moment by moment could not compare to the crystalline nightmare of that interior vision. Horley wondered if his was a form of madness as well. "'This is not the worst,' he said to his men. "'Not by far.' At the farm itself, 
they found the rest of the men and what was left of John's wife. But that is not what Horley had meant. At this point, Horley felt he should go himself to find the third bear. It wasn't bravery that made him put on the leather jerkin and the metal shin-guards. It wasn't from any sense of hope that he picked up the spear and put Clem's helmet on his head. His wife found him there, ready to walk out the door of their home. "'You wouldn't come back,' she told him. "'Better,' he said. "'Still.' "'You're more important to us alive.' "'Stronger men than you have tried to kill it.' "'I must do something,' Horley said. "'Winter will be here soon, and things will get worse.' "'Then do something,' Rebecca said, taking the spear from his hand. "'But do something else.' The villagers of Grauman met the next day. There was less talking this time. As Horty looked out over them, he thought some of them seemed resigned, almost as if the third bear were a plague, or some other force that could not be controlled or stopped by the hand of man. In the days that followed, there would be a frenzy of action. Traps set, torches lit, poisoned meat left in the forest. But none of it came to anything." One old woman kept muttering about fate and the will of God. "'John was a good man,' Horley told them. "'He did not deserve his death. But I was there. I saw his wounds. He died from an animal attack. It may be a clever animal. It may be very clever. But it is still an animal.' We should not fear it the way we fear it. You should consult with the witch in the woods, Clem's son said. Clem's son was a huge man of twenty years, and his word held weight, given the bravery of his father. Several people began to nod in agreement. Yes, said one, go to the witch. She might know what to do. The witch in the woods is just a poor, addled woman, Horley thought, but could not say it. Just two months ago, Horley reminded them, you were saying she might have made this happen. And if so, what of it? If she caused it, she can undo it. If not, perhaps she can help us. This from one of the farmers displaced from outside the walls. Word of John's fate had spread quickly, and less than a handful of the bravest or most foolhardy had kept to their farms. Rankers spread amongst the gathered villagers. Some wanted to take a party of men out to the witch, wherever she might live, and kill her. Others thought this folly— what if the third bear found them first? Finally, Horley raised his hands to silence them. Enough! If you want me to go to the witch in the woods, I will go to her. The relief on their faces as he looked out at them, the relief that it was he who would take the risk and not them, it was like a balm that cleansed their worries, if only for the moment. 
Some fools were even smiling. Later, Horley lay in bed with his wife. He held her tight, taking comfort in the warmth of her body. What can I do? What can I do, Rebecca? I'm scared. I know, I know you are. Do you think I'm not scared as well? But neither of us can show it, or they'll panic. And once they panic, Grauman is lost. But what can I do? Go see the witch woman, my love. If you go to her, it will make them calmer, and you can tell them whatever you like about what she says. If the third bear doesn't kill me before I can find her. If she isn't already dead. In the deep woods, in a silence so profound that the ringing in his ears had become the roar of a river, Horley looked for the witch woman. He knew that she had been exiled to the southern part of the forest, so he had started there and worked his way toward the center. What he was looking for, he did not know. A cottage? A tent? What he would do when he found her, Horley didn't know either. His spear, his incomplete armor, these things would not protect him if she truly was a witch. He tried to keep the vision of the terrible winter in his head as he walked, because concentrating on that more distant fear removed the current fear. If not for me, the third bear might not be here, Horley had said to Rebecca before he left. It was Horley who had stopped them from burning the witch, had insisted only on exile. That's nonsense, Rebecca had replied. Remember that she's just an old woman living in the woods. Remember that she can do you no real harm. It had been as if she'd read his thoughts. But now, breathing in the thick air of the forest, Horley felt less sure about the witch-woman. It was true there had been sickness in the village, until they had cast her out. Horley tried to focus on the spring of loam beneath his boots, the clean, dark smell of bark and earth and air. After a time, he crossed a dirt-choked stream. As if this served as a dividing line, the forest became yet darker. The sounds of wrens and finches died away. Above, he could see the distant dark shapes of hawks in the treetops, and patches of light shining down that almost looked more like bog or marsh water, so disoriented had he become. It was in this deep forest that he found a door. Horley had stopped to catch his breath after cresting a slight incline. Hands on his thighs, he looked up, and there it stood— a door, in the middle of the forest. It was made of old oak and overgrown with moss and mushrooms, and yet it seemed to flicker like glass. A kind of light or brightness hurtled through the ground, through the dead leaves and worms and beetles around the door. It was a subtle thing, 
and Horley half thought he was imagining it at first. He straightened up, grip tightening on his spear. The door stood by itself. Nothing human-made surrounded it, not even the slightest ruin of a wall. Horley walked closer. The knob was made of brass or some other yellowing metal. He walked around the door. It stood firmly wedged into the ground. The back of the door was the same as the front. Horley knew that if this was the entrance to the old woman's home, then she was indeed a witch. His hand remained steady, but his heart quickened and he thought furiously of winter, of icicles and bitter cold and snow falling slowly forever. For several minutes he circled the door, deciding what to do. For a minute more he stood in front of the door, pondering. A door always needs opening, he thought, finally. He grasped the knob and pushed, and the door opened. Some events have their own sense of time and their own logic. Horley knew this just from the change of seasons every year. He knew this from the growing of the crops and the birthing of children. He knew it from the forest itself and the cycles it went through that often seemed incomprehensible and yet had their own pattern, their own calendar. From the first thawed trickle of stream water in the spring to the last hopping frog in the fall, the world held a thousand mysteries. No man could hope to know the truth of all of them. When the door opened and he stood in a room very much like the room one might find in a woodman's cottage, with a fireplace and a rug and a shelf and pots and pans on the wood walls and a rocking chair, when this happened, Horley decided in the time it took him to blink twice that he had no need for the why of it or the how of it even. And this was, he realized later, the only reason he kept his wits about him. The witch-woman sat in the rocking-chair. She looked older than Horley remembered, as if much more than a year had passed since he had last seen her. Seeming made of ash and soot, her black dress lay flat against her sagging skin. She was blind, eye-sockets bare, but her wrinkled face strained to look at him anyway. There was a buzzing sound. "'I remember you,' she said. Her voice was croak and whisper both. Her arms were mottled with age spots, her hands so thin and cruel-looking that they could have been talons. She gripped the arms of the rocking-chair as if holding on to the world. There was a buzzing sound. It came, Horley finally realized, from a halo of black hornets that circled the old woman's head, their wings beating so fast they could hardly be seen. "'Are you Hasgat, who used to live in Grauman?' Horley asked. "'I remember you,' the witch-woman said again. "'I'm the elder of the village of Grauman.' The woman spat to the side. "'Those who threw poor Hasgat out.' 
They would have done much worse if I'd let them. They'd have burned me if they could, and all I knew then were a few charms, a few herbs, just because I wasn't one of them, just because I'd seen a bit of the world. Hasgat was staring right at him, and Horley knew that, eyes or no eyes, she could see him. It was wrong, Horley said. It was wrong, she said. I had nothing to do with the sickness. Sickness comes from animals, from people's clothes. It clings to them and spreads through them. And yet you are a witch? Hasgat laughed, although it ended with coughing. Because I have a hidden room, because my door stands by itself? Horley grew impatient. Would you help us if you could? Would you help us if we let you return to the village? Hasgat straightened up in the chair, and the halo of hornets disintegrated, then reformed. The wood in the fireplace popped and crackled. Horley felt a chill in the air. "'Help you return to the village?' She spoke as if chewing, her tongue a fat gray grub. "'A creature is attacking and killing us.' Hasgat laughed. When she laughed, Horley could see a strange double image in her face, a younger woman beneath the older. "'Is that so? What kind of creature?' We call it the third bear. I do not believe it is really a bear. Hasgat doubled over in mirth. Not really a bear. A bear that is not a bear. We cannot seem to kill it. We thought that you might know how to defeat it. It stays to the forest, the witch woman said. It stays to the forest, and it is a bear but not a bear. It kills your people when they use the forest paths. It kills your people in the farms. It even sneaks into your graveyards and takes the heads of your dead. You are full of fear and panic. You cannot kill it, but it keeps murdering you in the most terrible of ways. And that was winter coming from her dry, stained lips. "'Do you know of it, then?' Horley asked, his heart fast now from hope, not fear. "'Ah, yes, I know it,' Hasgat said, nodding. "'I know the third bear, Thee-bear, Seether. After all, I brought it here.' The spear moved in Horley's hand, and it would have driven itself deep into the woman's chest if Horley had let it. "'For revenge?' Horley asked. "'Because we drove you out of the village?' Hasgat nodded. "'Unfair. It was unfair. You should not have done it.' "'You're right,' Horley thought. "'I should have let them burn you.' "'You're right,' Horley said. "'We should not have done it. "'But we have learned our lesson.' 
I was once a woman of knowledge and learning, Hasgat said. Once I had a real cottage in a village. Now I am old, and the forest is cold and uncomfortable. All of this is illusion. And she gestured at the fireplace, at the walls of the cottage. There is no cottage, no fireplace, no rocking chair. Right now we are both dreaming beneath dead leaves among worms and the beetles and the dirt. My back is sore and patterned by leaves. This is no place for someone as old as me. I'm sorry, Horty said. You can come back to the village. You can live among us. We'll pay for your food. We'll give you a house to live in. Hasgat frowned. And some logs, I'll warrant. Some logs, and some rope, and some fire to go with it, too. Horley took off his helmet, stared into Hasgat's eye sockets. I'll promise you whatever you want. No harm will come to you, if you will help us. A man has to realize when he's beaten, when he's done wrong. You can have whatever you want. On my honor. Hasgat brushed at the hornets, wringing her head. Nothing is that easy. Isn't it? I brought it from a place far distant. In my anger, I sat in the middle of the forest, despairing, and I called for it from across the miles, across the years. I never expected it would come to me. So you can send it back? Hasgat frowned, spat again, and shook her head. No, I hardly remember how I called it. And some day it may even be my head it takes. Sometimes it is easier to summon something than to send it away. You cannot help us at all. If I could, I might, but calling it weakened me. It is all I can do to survive. I dig for toads and eat them raw. I wander the woods searching for mushrooms. I talk to the deer and I talk to the squirrels. Sometimes the birds tell me things about where they've been. Some day I will die out here, all by myself, completely mad. Horley's frustration heightened. He could feel the calm he had managed to keep leaving him. The spear twitched and jerked in his hands. What if he killed her? Might that send the third bear back where it had come from? What can you tell me about the third bear? Can you tell me anything that might help me? Hasgat shrugged. It acts to its nature, and it is far from home, so it clings to ritual even more. Where it is from, it is no more or less bloodthirsty than any other creature. There they call it Mord, but this far from home it appears more horrible than it is. It is merely making a pattern. When the pattern is finished, it will leave and go someplace else. Maybe the pattern will even help send it home. A pattern of heads. Yes, 
A pattern with heads. Do you know when it will be finished? No. Do you know where it lives? Yes, it lives here. In his mind, he saw a hill. He saw a cave. He saw the third bear. Do you know anything else? No. Hasgat grinned up at him. He drove the spear through her dry chest. There was a sound like twigs breaking. Horley woke, covered in leaves, in the dirt, his body curled up next to the old woman. He jumped to his feet, picking up his spear. The old woman, dressed in a black dress and dirty shawl, was dreaming and mumbling in her sleep. Dead hornets had become entangled in her stringy hair. She clutched a dead toad in her left hand. A smell came from her of rot, of shit. There was no sign of the door. The forest was silent and dark. Horley almost drove the spear into her chest again, but she was tiny, like a bird, and defenseless, and staring down at her, he could not do it. He looked around at the trees, at the fading light. It was time to accept that there was no reason to it, no why. It was time to get out one way or another. A pattern of heads, he muttered to himself all the way home. A pattern of heads. Horley did not remember much about the meeting with the villagers upon his return. They wanted to hear about a powerful witch who could help or curse them, some force greater than themselves, some glint of hope through the trees, a light in the dark. He could not give it to them. He told them the truth, as much as he dared, but also hinted that the witch had told him how to defeat the third bear. Did it do much good? He didn't know. He could still see winter before them. He could still see blood. And they'd brought it on themselves. That was the part he didn't tell them. That a poor old woman, with the ground for a bed and dead leaves for a blanket, thought she had, through her anger, brought the third bear down upon them. Theber, Seether. "'You must leave,' he told Rebecca later. "'Take a wagon. Take a mule. Load it with supplies. Don't let yourself be seen. Take our two sons. Bring that young man who helps chop firewood for us, if you can trust him.' Rebecca stiffened beside him. She was quiet for a very long time. "'Where will you be?' she asked. Horley was forty-seven years old. He had lived in Grauman his entire life. "'I have one thing left to do, and then I will join you.' "'I know you will, my love,' Rebecca said, holding on to him tightly, running her hands across his body, as if as blind as the old witch-woman, remembering, remembering.' They both knew there was only one way Horley could be sure Rebecca and his sons made it out of the forest safely. 
Horley started from the south, just upwind from where Rebecca had set out along an old cart trail, and curled in toward the third bear's home. After a long trek, Horley came to a hill that might have been a cairn made by his ancestors. A stream flowed down it and puddled at his feet. The stream was red and carried with it gristle and bits of marrow. It smelled like black pudding frying. The blood mixed with the deep green of the moss and turned it purple. Horley watched the blood ripple at the edges of his boots for a moment, and then he slowly walked up the hill. He'd been carelessly loud for a long time as he walked through the leaves. About this time, Rebecca would be more than halfway through the woods, he knew. In the cave, surrounded by all that Clem had seen and more, Horley disturbed Theber at his work. Horley's spear had long since slipped through his numb fingers. He'd pulled off his helmet because it itched, and because he was sweating so much. He'd had to rip his tunic and hold the cloth against his mouth. Horley had not meant to have a conversation. He'd meant to try to kill the beast. But now that he was there, now that he saw, all he had left were words. Horley's boot crunched against half-soggy bone. Feber didn't flinch. Feber already knew. Feber kept licking the fluid out of the skull in his hairy hand. Feber did look a little like a bear. Horley could see that. But no bear was that tall or that wide, or looked as much like a man as a beast. The ring of heads lined every flat space in the cave, painted blue and green and yellow and red and white and black. Even in the extremity of his situation, Horley could not deny that there was something beautiful about the pattern. This painting, Horley began in a thin, stretched voice, these heads... How many do you need? Feber turned its bloodshot, carious gaze on Horley, body swiveling as if made of air, not muscle and bone. How do you know not to be afraid? Horley asked, shaking, piss running down his leg. Is it true you come from a long way away? Are you homesick? Somehow, not knowing the answers to so many questions made Horley's heart soar for the many other things he would never know, never understand. Theber approached. It stank of mud and offal and rain. It made a continual sound like the rumble of thunder mixed with a cat's purr. It had paws, but it had thumbs. Horley stared up into its eyes. The two of them stood there, silent, for a long moment. Horley trying with everything he had to read some comprehension, some understanding into that face. Those eyes, oddly gentle. The muzzle, 
wet with carrion. We need you to leave. We need you to go somewhere else. Please. Horley could see Hasgat's door in the forest in front of him. It was opening in a swirl of dead leaves. A light was coming from inside of it. A light from very, very far away. Fieber held Horley against his chest. Horley could hear the beating of its mighty heart, as loud as the world. Rebecca and his sons would be almost past the forest by now. Seether tore Horley's head from his body, let the rest crumple to the dirt floor. Horley's body lay there for a good long while. Winter came, as brutal as it had ever been, and the third bear continued in its work. With Horley gone, the villagers became ever more listless. Some few disappeared into the forest and were never heard from again. Others feared the forest so much that they ate berries and branches at the outskirts of their homes and never hunted wild game. Their supplies gave out. Their skin became ever more pale, and they stopped washing themselves. They believed the words of madmen and adopted strange customs. They stopped wearing clothes. They would have relations in the street. At some point, they lost sight of reason entirely and sacrificed virgins to the third bear, who took them as willingly as anyone else. They took to mutilating their bodies, thinking that this is what the third bear wanted them to do. Some few, in whom reason persisted, had to be held down and mutilated by others. A few cannibalized those who froze to death, and others who had not died almost wished they had. No relief came. The baron never brought his men. Spring came finally, and the streams unthawed. The birds came back, the trees regained their leaves, and the frogs, unthawed, began to sing their mating songs. In the deep forest, an old wooden door lay half-buried in moss and dirt, leading nowhere, all light fading from it. And on an overgrown hill there lay an empty cave, with nothing but a few dead leaves and a few bones littering the dirt floor. The third bear had finished its pattern and moved on, but for the remaining villagers he would always be there. Oh, there you go. Don't forget, as usual, copyright is Mr. Jeff Vandermeer. Jeff, sir, thank you very much for that. Don't go out there, pinchy pinchy, and steely stealing. All copyright is Jeff Vandermeer's. And many thanks to Mark Nelson. Mark, what a fine narration that is, sir. Thank you very much. So that rounds up Starship Sofas. Oral Delights. It's just left to announce what the competition is. If you remember in the show earlier on, we did the new titles section. And those three books are up for grabs. What, what is the competition? Basically, get 
The Starship Sova mentioned on another blog. Don't just go and create a blog and write on your own blog. That's cheaty, cheaty. Get the Starship Sova mentioned on a blog. Drop us an email. First ones to do it, get the books. Simple as that. There you go. Starshipsover at gmail.com And hopefully I'll be able to kind of do this most times, to be quite honest, you know. If you can get the Starship Sova mentioned on someone else's blog, you win a book. Just drop me that email. So there you go. That is the Starship Sova number 51. Next week we have the fantastic Michael Moorcock and Elric Story coming up. We have the art cover by Skeet, no less. So please look out for those. Short story by... Joe R. Lansdale as well, narrated by our good friend, Larry Santuro. So until then, I would just like to say thank you so much to everyone who has helped put this together. And good night from me. Will our heroes survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of Starship Sofa. Of that erasure procedure initiated. Shuttle set for launch. Airlock will be opened in three, two.